All right. No cold open today, listeners. We're sorry. There's just too much to talk about. <laughs> my name is john i'm dan and welcome to the warmest open of all time that's right <laughs> i'm lena and i'm here for it and we are an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much for any support you're giving us on patreon it goes a long way towards supporting the show if you're not in the discord already hop in there it's totally free and a great place to find out more about the things we talk about if you are a patron and you don't have stickers just message us on patreon and we'll get them to you asap and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or anywhere you think it will help i don't even have a good joke for this one today because i am furious about about what has happened to the uh, the rail workers in the wake of a what was it a little like memorandum or something Joe Biden sent out urging Congress to act to save the economy? <laughs> yeah, it was just like a, one of those statements from the White House that I think right. in the past would have been like I don't know a, a ten minute address on all the major uh, networks, and now they just put out like the white house blog or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Substack. but yeah so obviously we got to lead off with the big story in labor which everybody all our listeners will be well aware uh was president biden and the democrats coming together to fuck over the rail workers mm -hmm. last week so uh we're gonna walk through the whole process what happened uh and and kind of try and have a little bit of a discussion about where things go from here uh, where we see developments happening and, and maybe looking at a little of the like long view on this. But to to get us back to basically right after we recorded last week, mm -hmm. uh, on Monday the 28th, and I think important to mention here, nearly two weeks before the December 9th deadline for rail negotiations to potentially open up into a strike, President Biden put out a statement on... <laughs> whitehouse.gov or whatever, um, calling on Congress to use anti-labor elements of the Railway Labor Act to forcibly impose the recommendations of his presidential emergency board that were made back months ago onto the rail workers. Um, this call came immediately, and I, this is another thing that I really haven't seen be reported many places. Mm -hmm. This move by Biden came immediately following a letter that was issued by a collection of, I believe, about 400 business groups calling on Congress to stop a strike, which I think is an important detail that's not getting talked about because it shows how responsive the, like, the Democrats are to the people they actually serve. Right. Well, and it, it also, like, you, you see how long the workers have been fighting during right. this struggle compared to a bunch of business leaders get together and send Congress a letter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, and right. so, and I think that one thing to point out that's a little important about that, you know, it happening two weeks before is that it basically took any leverage that the workers had away from them because with the threat of an impending strike, they maybe could have squeezed out some concessions or maybe gotten something better. I mean, we don't know and we will never know now. Right. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like the, there was, even if you believe the the lie from the, the White House and most of the Democrats that it was supposedly necessary to prevent mm -hmm. a rail strike, uh, the only reason to do it this early in the process 
is because, as you said, Lena, is they want to remove any chance of any additional concessions over those last two weeks. So uh, just to point out, this this agreement that Congress has uh, now chosen to impose on the rail workers is the same agreement that four of the 12 main rail unions, uh, and this is the other thing, people point out that f- it's four of the 12 rail unions, but they often don't point out is that those four rail unions represent the majority of all rail workers, 55% mm-hmm. of them voted to reject that agreement over the last several weeks. And in his statement, Biden specifically called for the agreement to be imposed, quote, without any modifications or delay, end quote. So there, like, despite a lot of the, the talk that got cut out about how, you know, Biden's still a pro-union president, he wanted them to pass sick days. No, no, he didn't. That's not true. Don't listen to anybody who tells you that. Well, and you you can hear it in his own statements about this, where he's like not even backpedaling elegantly. He said, quote, as a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic <laughs> impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. And That's just, like, disgraceful on so many levels. One, to act like overriding the ratification process and being pro-labor in any way are at all compatible. And then, two, trying to pin the burden on these workers as if they're going to disrupt hardworking American families' lives and as if, like, the people who aren't going to be experiencing the biggest, you know, impact from a strike are their employers, the very exact people that they are trying to target with these actions. Yeah, it's exactly like I said last week when we were talking about the trucker strike and President Yoon's statement saying that, you know, it was between the truckers and the public, basically excluding the truckers themselves from the public. In the same way, Joe Biden has excluded the rail workers from working people and families. You know, and, and the other thing, and I think it's important to just take a pause here to talk about that language, because I think it's really important. It's it's a really uh, devious uh, piece of rhetorical sleight of hand, mm-hmm. because in that statement where he talks about, you know, the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families. He's shifting the cause of the strike onto the rail workers from the actual cause of what would have been a potential rail strike which is the years and years of destruction of the railroad system by these rail companies. Right. And, and, and I mean, to point out, like, he, he also claimed in his statement that the agreement was reached in good faith by both sides. Uh, that's a quote from his statement. That's just not true. Like, that's not even, like, twisting. That's literally a lie. Like, because, again, if the agreement was reached in both good faith by both sides, why did a majority of rail workers vote against it? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if it's a good faith deal, like, why did you have to impose it via Congress? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, It's categorically not possible. And we've seen statement after statement after statement from so many business executives that rely on rail transit in Mm -hmm. their earnings calls being like, yeah, we're not really worried about a rail strike because we know Congress is going to set is going to step in. So, like, again, right. yeah, yeah, no, and 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 like, and well, the, it's not like they're the only ones who called this either. I mean, when right. we had Justin Rosniak on our show, he mentioned this is a very likely outcome. It's not set in stone or anything, but it definitely could happen. Yeah, and and because of all of these anti labor provisions within the Railway Labor Act, the there's no incentive for the the rail carriers to bargain in good faith because mm-hmm. they know that when the chips are down, that the that the uh, parties are going to back them. 
So the idea that they were ever bargaining in good faith on this is just is is insulting to to the workers who have been involved in this process. And so, I mean, just to get back on some of the history for folks, some of the background on this, the Railway Labor Act was originally passed in 1926. This is nearly a century old law. And it was passed after 50 years of, of increasingly raucous strikes, starting with the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, on the railways that won workers better and better wages and conditions because they were able to leverage their power over the transit of freight. So Congress wrote this law to give the state the ability to block rail strikes and to enforce labor peace precisely because of how powerful railroad workers had become. And, and so, and like uh, Justin explained on our, our episode that we did with him, uh, over the last few decades, rail carriers have merged into a few regional monopolies that dominate the, the freight rail system with absolutely no competition. And the carriers have used a combination of that lack of competition due to merger and the, the shield from labor disruptions that is created by the Railway Labor Act in order to force worse and worse and worse contracts and worse conditions onto the rail workers because the rail workers haven't really had any leverage to stop them. Yeah, I and, mean, it's, it's like something we say on this show a lot, which is like, not only is labor peace not in our interest, but labor peace doesn't mean that the bosses stop fighting the workers. It just means that the workers stop fighting the bosses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so, like, during the same time period, using systems like so-called precision-scheduled railroading uh, to try and minimize labor costs and maximize profits, rail carriers have massively degraded the conditions of the freight rail network in this country, which has not only hurt the workers, which is, of course, the primary thing we care about on this show, but has even hurt their customers. Uh, like, the, the recent imposition of an incredibly draconian attendance policy at BNSF and other carriers has left rail workers with basically no time to see their families and, and no way of taking time off if they get sick. And because anytime they go to the doctor, if they don't use paid vacation days for it, they're risking being fired. Mm-hmm. And so they are essentially chained to their posts by this contract that Congress just voted to take away all their leverage on. Yeah, the reason being that uh, if we don't enforce these insane draconian policies on these workers that enrich their private bosses, uh, then the economy will shut down, according to President Biden. So uh, the Railway Labor Act notably gives Congress the ability to force terms of settlement not only on these unions, but on the carriers as well. Also interesting that Congress is given that power by a law they wrote, but whatever. Uh, though it would still be wrong to interfere with these workers' ability to strike, Biden could have chosen instead to force the rail carriers to change their attendance policies or to mandate higher staffing levels for safety or to require them to provide one to two weeks of paid sick time. They literally could have done anything, but mm-hmm. instead specifically instructed Democrats in Congress not to change the deal, uh, you know, writing it off as some kind of like, this was, you know, uh, developed by both parties and good faith and must be uh, pushed through as expediently as possible, blah, 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 but just a bunch of fucking lies. And uh, so it, it's, it makes it completely obvious at the end of the day that like the well-being of the rail workers is not at all a factor of consideration for mm-hmm. Biden or the Democratic Party. They are only interested in BNSF and the other carriers. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is that that sentiment itself is uh, ref- is reflective of the BMWE that said in their statement on Tuesday, the 29th, it's not enough to share the workers concerns. A call to Congress to act immediately to pass legislation that adopts tentative agreements that excludes paid sick leave ignores the railroad, the railroad workers concerns. It both denies railroad workers their right to strike while also denying them the benefit that they would likely otherwise obtain if they were not denied the right to strike. 
And I think that that's really important here because that's exactly what the Railway Labor Act has, is intended to do, which is to like restrict the right to strike. But then Congress itself has said a restriction is not enough. We have to get rid of the right to strike. Mm-hmm. Well, and in response to all of this, like basically just uh, fucking around of workers by Congress and by the Democrats, some of the more radical unions have immediately spoken up condemning this action. So you see like the Teamsters, the AFA, the ILWU, and quite a few other major unions immediately issued messages of support to these workers and condemn the move to impose a contract by force. You also have hundreds of labor historians who signed a letter condemning the move and calling on Biden to reverse his decision and allow the workers to maintain their right to strike. And I got to say, like, especially the labor historians where it's like literally their job to know how these things have gone in the past. Like, maybe you should fucking listen to them, too. Like, geez. Yeah, I was I was very glad to, to see those those immediate signs of support from folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just which just further continued to make clear whose voices the Democrats actually care about as right. they then immediately uh, ignored all of those people. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and, and now we'll get into, I mean, some of the places where there's been a lot of discourse and argument on this issue, at least online. So on Wednesday, November 30th, uh, Nancy Pelosi announced that the House would vote on this on two bills. One, to force the democratically rejected contract down workers' throats, and the second bill to add a week of sick days. Uh, and there is a, a lot of people pointed this out like very quickly. I know like Adam Johnson was on top of this like right away. It was basically obvious the second they said we're going to vote on two bills, exactly was what was going to happen over the next two days, and it played out exactly as everybody expected because there was upon the move by Congress to impose the Railway Labor Act onto these workers and block their right to strike. There was immediately a movement from some progressives to say, "Hey." These workers rejected the deal because it doesn't have sick days, which is like only partially true. There was other issues involved too, but that mm-hmm. you know, sick days was one of the biggest uh, single demands. So that's well, and true. it was highlighted because it was really about making sure that people didn't think it was just about wages, and it was kind of just right. supposed to be like a wedge in the door to talk about the other issues as well. Well, exactly. and it also was one of the things that the companies explicitly said they wouldn't budge on. So it yes. would make a really big difference. It was a big stone in the bucket, so to speak. Right, and so. Uh, you know, you had some progressive voices who were like, hey, we can't, if we're going to use this act, we have to at least give them sick days too. Mm-hmm. Which, just to, to, to talk about that for a minute, it's like, the, the, if, if you have a progressive or even somebody who calls themselves a socialist and you get elected to the United States Congress and there's a bill that would ban workers from striking, I don't care what the justification is. I don't really care what the other extenuating circumstances are. Your job is to vote against that bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you should and, be siding with workers 100% of the time. Yeah, and, and we didn't see that. So there, there was a, the, the whole point of separating the two bills and not including the sick days in the, the first bill was to make it so that there would not be a progressive protest within the House and that inevitably when those bills got to the senate the first bill the bill banning the right to strike would pass 
and the bill imposing sick days on the carriers would fail. And that's exactly what happened. It mm-hmm. was, you know, I don't want to say that we were brilliant in calling that because <laughs> everybody <laughs> called that. It was well, very easy to tell. It's just right. obvious. Yeah. One thing to highlight, though, is that, I mean, it didn't die in the Senate be- just because of votes, because the Democrats actually did have the ability to make sure that it came to pass by using the filibuster, which they have consistently like neglected to use their actual power on things like abortion. This issue, I mean, it's just a historical thing that the Democrats just are like, no, we will not do that. We will not use our majority, and yeah. we will not actually use our power. I mean, and, who's and- the, isn't Bernie Sanders the only Democratic senator who's done a filibuster like in the last few years for anything reasonable. (laughs) Well that, so that's the other thing. There's a bunch of things you could like, I want to point out about the voting here. Like first off all but uh, eight house Democrats Mm -hmm. voted for the first one of these bills, which is the, the bill to ban the right to strike. So here's the thing. Uh, like most of the members of the squad voted to force this contract on the workers. Uh, there were, but there were plenty of work people like the eight house Democrats who voted against it who voted against the bill to enforce this onto the workers, but for the bill to add sick days, which is the, that's in this condition. If you lack the power to change, like how the bills are being voted on, which of course progressives in the Congress do, then that's the vote you're supposed to take. Right. (laughs) But that's not what we saw from most of the people claiming to be on the side of the workers. They voted to impose the con contract onto these workers and prevent them from striking with the justification of, oh, well, we're also adding sick days. And then again, once it, as you were saying, once it got into the Senate, we ran into the exact same justification that we've heard on every single one of these issues. And it's one that is maddening because it's not true. Because like when the recent Supreme Court decision gutting Roe v. Wade came out, we heard, what did we hear from Democrats about protecting abortion rights? We can't do it. It would take 60 votes to overcome the filibuster. Same thing with gay marriage, same thing with so many, the the PRO Act, so many of these other things. Again, the filibuster is just a rule. They could change it to get rid of it at any time and make it so they could pass anything in the Senate with an up or down majority vote. They Mm -hmm. chose not to do that because they would rather use these issues as political footballs than actually do something that helps workers. And this was exactly the same case here. They had 52 votes to add sick days. They could have eliminated the filibuster and pushed this through they chose not to do that again right showing that they do not actually give a shit about what these workers need well and so, that's a, I'm, I'm glad that you clarified that because i don't think i phrased it properly but i i, I do want to point out that you know that if they vote to to ban the strike and then also to impose sick days as if like that's some great thing 50 percent is still failing like yeah. i'm sorry that's not that's not for workers yeah, no, a hundred percent. And so, like, the it just you know it just got shittier from there because we saw that you know the 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 sick days bill died in the Senate, and and then you've got Biden telling reporters after that that the deal was quote so much better than anything they ever had end quote essentially saying that the rail workers should be grateful to have this deal imposed on them because it's so wonderful to have a contract that tells you that the only time you're allowed to go to the doctor is if you schedule it a month in advance and if it's on a Tuesday, a Wednesday, or a Thursday. Why mm-hmm. is it that they needed Congress to have it imposed? They, If it was so good, they would have just accepted it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. Like, it, It's not as if you had like 
some openly communist rail worker, uh, rail union leadership out here tell, like telling all the workers to vote no, you know, as cool as that would be, <laughs> like that's not what happened. Uh, no. So the, like the, the fact that the workers voted no, it should be an indication that likely if the Railway Labor Act didn't exist, there would have been a lot more than 55% of the workers voting against this. Because right. like we know from, from rail workers who've been interviewed by people like Jonah Furman and other really good labor reporters, that there were plenty of workers who voted yes on the deal purely because they thought this exact process is what was going to happen and that functionally their vote didn't really count because it was going to be overridden by Congress if they voted against it. Well, and so, then in the wake of all of this, Biden literally cannot stop gloating about it and trying yeah. to play it up like he did everybody a favor, like the public, the workers, and the carriers, um, when really he only did the carriers a favor. And so during the actual signing of the bill on Friday, he said, quote, working together, we have spared this country a Christmas catastrophe in our grocery stores, in our workplaces, and in our communities. And that's just such a fucking dishonest thing, like as if we're all, like Christmas is canceled, there's no free trains anymore don't go see your parents like what the fuck are you talking about man <laughs> well and it's it's so insulting to the rail workers because mm -hmm. you're saying look how great it is that i stopped these greedy workers from trying to improve their conditions he's like we've spared the country a christmas catastrophe well, what about the catastrophe about these hundred and fifteen thousand workers that never get to see their kids mm -hmm. like what about the catastrophe of these workers who die on the job because they don't take their sick days to go to a doctor because oh wait they don't have any fucking sick days right like the, the catastrophe is already ongoing and has been ongoing all this bill did was prevent the rail workers from addressing the catastrophe well and like unsurprisingly the rail workers aren't buying the bullshit at all which i mean you know we should know from the fact that they voted down the agreement in the first place but we heard from tom modica who's a rail mechanic in chicago and he told the washington post quote the fact that they're willing to force a contract down our throats to keep the railroads from shutting down means we're important but they get sick days and we're out here in the snow all day and we don't and it's pretty hypocritical so, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, and there's been the infographic going around that's like some months, Congress is only in session for like nine days. Yeah. <laughs> and they can take as many days off as they want. They can call in sick whenever they want with no penalty. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. And all of this to protect, by the way, this was a stat I didn't realize, the most profitable industry in the country, the, uh, the class one freight rail carriers have on average produced a profit for investors of 51% per year, which is... Uh, ridiculous. Like, I didn't yeah. know there was anything that had that high of a profit margin. Well, when you uh, have an industry that all the other industries rely on, you can kind of charge whatever you want. Well, and especially and when if you, you can petition the government to let to let to make them let you do whatever you want. So, yeah. right, well, right to to make it so that you don't have to deal with any labor leverage because right. you have the government coming in to 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 drop the hammer on workers anytime they try to improve their conditions. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean. It's very frustrating, like, uh... Yeah, I mean, we should talk about how the workers can move forward or what might happen. Yeah, because, you know, we've been getting plenty of questions from listeners about, is there going to be a wildcat strike? Is one likely, like, if there's going to be, how can I support the wildcat strike? All that thing, which mm -hmm. appreciate the energy very much from our listeners. <laughs> I'm very glad that that's the sort of questions that we're getting. Um, and so to try and answer that, all he can really, you know, ultimately it's it's impossible to know for sure at this point because you know any organizing that's going on is going to be largely happening internally within the rail unions however based on what we've seen from from various groups within the rail workers 
I, I do not think an organized wildcat on any large scale is particularly likely right now, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, I mean, we would obviously be in support of a wildcat by the rail workers. I mean, they've been fucked over for decades by the, by the government and it would be absolutely right and just of them to hold a wildcat strike and, and, and we'd for sure support it. But doing something like that, again, this is a nationwide thing. You're talking about 115,000 workers. Mm-hmm. That takes a huge amount of planning, coordination, and courage. Uh, and, and it is unclear if the leadership of, of many of the craft unions are, are really at that stage right now. Um, I, I think that some of our best indications come from some of the statements we saw from groups like uh, Railroad Workers United, which is probably the largest uh, reform movement within the railway labor uh, that, that we've seen. I mean, they actually host events. They, they have like fundraisers. They, they've done pressure campaigns to, to try and, and inform people about the Railway Labor Act and all of its bullshit. And they have not been moving towards a, a, anything like a wildcat strike in their statements. More of what they've been discussing is trying to harness the energy, the anger, the betrayal of this moment into building those internal rank-and-file structures that will create the level of organization necessary to have a wildcat strike in the future. So I, 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 right now, the way that I see it going is not necessarily seeing any co- major coordinated wildcat action now but that this being used by some of the workers to try and build up that internal militancy within the rail unions so that the next time this negotiation comes around in a couple of years, that those structures are in place, the the support structures are there, the ties with other unions are there, and the internal solidarity networks have been built up so that they can have a wildcat strike whether the leadership is ready for it or not. And so, But there has been some pretty explicit... Uh, language from from some of the 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 rank and file like in their statement after the vote uh railroad railroad workers united general secretary jason during said quote this one two punch from the two political parties is despicable politicians are happy to voice platitudes and he preys upon us for our heroism throughout the pandemic the essential nature of our work the difficult and dangerous and demanding conditions of our jobs Yet when the steel hits the rail, they back the powerful and wealthy class one rail carriers every time, end quote. And I think that's a pretty clear-eyed assessment um, from RWU. I think they're, they're absolutely right. Uh, and, and so we have seen some more, I, I will say, over the last few months, mm-hmm. not just like over the last couple of days, but as we've moved towards this point, we have seen, I feel like, the platform of RWU get more militant. There's been explicit calls to look at the potential for like a labor party, which is great to see. Uh, there's been explicit calls to prepare the structures necessary to hold a wildcat strike next time. And explicit statements put out to say that like not only do the rail carriers need like railroad workers need to be prepping for a potential wildcat strike and to 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 really be able to enforce their will on the uh, you know rail carriers that are exploiting them so much, but also to press for nationalization of the rail network, which ultimately is the the one thing that would really solve the core problem here, which is you know the the endless pursuit of maximum profit by the rail carriers. So I, that's all pointing, I think, in a really good direction. I think uh, Rail Workers United is a really great group to support. They've put out you know fundraising calls and stuff so that they can try and build up their network. I definitely recommend supporting them. But as far as like, is there going to be a railroad strike 
in the immediate near future. The only thing that I've seen calling for that is the statement that came out in, in, in uh, World Socialist website uh, by, by the rank and file like rail workers committee, which the only thing I've ever heard of from that group are the statement they put out the other day in there and the statement that they put out after the original tentative agreement was reached back in September. So, uh, and I don't say that to criticize, like, like, look, we, we dunked on WSWS plenty of times, but like, I'm not just dismissing it cause that's where it was posted. Like, I actually think it was a pretty good statement that that group put out. Like, I, I think they did a great job calling out Congress and, and stuff, but like, as far, I have not seen much indication that that group is very large or has particularly a high level of influence to the point where it would be able to organize any sort of significant wildcat strike action. So well, I think that uh, I mean, if most it, of that is it, associated with the party that's associated with WSWS and that most of the work that's being done is by party members, um, kind of as I was talking about to some UAW folks who were talking about that. And we're going to talk about that election later. But, uh, you know, some of the people who were supporting Will Lehman were, you know, contacted by the by that mm-hmm. campaign, but they were actually really just people from WSWS. And not to say that, like, party members can't advocate uh, for better reforms on workers, but it wasn't coming from the rank, the rank and file. Mm. Yeah. So, like, uh, again, I don't want to belittle that statement because it was a good statement, even though I, we don't like WSWS because they're kind of ridiculous. But, like... It's just that I don't see a lot of in nowhere in any of the spaces uh, that I've seen people talking, whether it's, you know, Jonah Furman talking directly to rank and file railroad workers, whether it's the folks being retweeted and posted by RWU or other groups. It's the frustration that I've seen actually has been directed more towards either gearing up for the next round or, frankly, for a lot of folks talking about retirement. Because that's mm-hmm. like another, I think, outcome that this is one of the points that like Justin Rosniak has been talking about a lot uh, on Twitter in the wake of this is how many of these workers are likely to just leave uh, rail work over the next couple of years because there's provisions in the contract that, you know, once you've worked there long enough, you can take your, your retirement and, and go. And if with Congress continually making it so that workers really have no Democratic voice in their bargaining, there's more and more workers who are just saying, look, this job sucks now and we have no way to make it any better. So once I qualify for retirement or certain levels of bonus pay, I'm just going to get that and leave because this job sucks now. Yeah. And then once they lose like a certain amount of their skill pool, it's going to end up having the same effects or maybe even worse effects in some ways than a strike or a slowdown. I mean, like, as soon as President Biden signed this bill, like a train violently derailed on a bridge oh, in the yeah. middle of Pennsylvania. And we're just going to see more and more of that if retirement is the only option for these highly skilled, highly experienced workers. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, th- th- we're going to keep following up on this if there's more stuff that comes out. I mean, there is still... I don't know if there's going to be more statements coming up on the rest of the week where, you know, the original strike date was put, but we'll make sure to follow up on that if there is anything next week. But in another follow up, we're going to be talking kind of what I had talked about earlier with the truckers in South Korea who are being forced by President Yoon to uh, strike. Uh, which is so related to the to mm-hmm. the rail strike because it's a, a very important logistical strike, and these workers who have been on strike have really put made a big impact on the economy of South Korea. Yeah, 
So we talked last week about the fact that this was the second time this year that this group of workers from the the trucker solidarity like subsection of the KCTU have gone on strike, uh, specifically trying to make sure that the the government does not withdraw legislation granting them a minimum wage. Um, And and there's so, as you're saying, Lena, there's so many parallels here with the uh, crushing of the possibility of a rail strike in the U.S. So uh, we, we talked about the possibility last week that President Yoon's government would attempt to force the workers uh, back to work. And, ba- and I think like the day after we recorded, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, the South Korean government issued a back to work order specifically targeted at the 350 cement truck drivers that are part of this strike because of the impact that those workers being on strike had on the construction industry in South Korea. Uh, so they have now said that if the cement drivers do not return to work, the government can suspend their transport licenses for 30 days then revoke them, and that these workers could face up to three years in jail and fines of up to $22,500, which is uh, the 30 million won. Uh, and this is actually, so, th- and this has been invoked via a act that seems relatively similar to the Railway Labor Act. It's called the Trucking Transport Business Act. And oh, this right. is actually the first use of this uh, strike-breaking provision in the law since it was passed in 2004. It's and never a good sign when you have an industry-specific labor legislation in your country. That's always that's just two-tiered contracts on a grand scale. And they're so often yeah. associated directly with logistics. Mm-hmm. You, well, or agriculture. I mean, yeah, because in the yeah. same way that you know we see most of our labor law, like when it comes in, it's mostly to ban the most effective, you know, strike measures, mm-hmm. like sit-down strikes, secondary strikes, secondary boycotts. That stuff all got illegal because it worked. And it's kind of the same thing here. They have to ban strikes by logistics workers because they have so much power. So, and, and I mean, just look at the parallels in Yoon's statement to the stuff Biden's been saying, because like in, in issuing the back to work order, President Yoon said this, quote, supply chains for cement and steel have been disrupted. Construction and production sites all over the country have been put on hold, posing a serious threat to the foundation of our country's industries. Even the daily lives of our citizens are under threat. No, they're quote. not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's this positioning of the workers demanding basic rights that that is somehow an attack on the national security of the country, that this this sort of rhetorical discursive formation is being deployed by really it's being used all over the world right now, like mm-hmm. all well, all over the imperialist world, because you have, you know, Biden trying to use this against the rail workers here in the U.S. You had uh, Premier Ford in Canada mm-hmm. using that against the school staff. Uh, you have the UK threatening to use the military to break strikes by nurses in the next few weeks. And you have Yoon here saying that this is an attack on the economy. And then he even came out this and said wild. that the KCTU, quote, represents the interest of the North Korean regime, end quote. Mm. That's so wild and dishonest. And and really, like, I mean, red baiting and anti-communism is a classic, like, talking point of these these you know neoliberal goons who are destroying workers rights i mean yeah. we also saw similar things in like you mentioned the uk workers their uk workers are being told that they're supporting putin by being yeah. on the strike mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely ridiculous yeah and it takes a different form depending on what country it's in but also when it happens in a country like South Korea that is like a fully fledged client state of the United States it also has to make you wonder like how long until what do they call it the boomerang of imperialism or something mm-hmm. where they try out tactics in 
client states or colonies. And then if they work, they bring them home. So if this works, then, you know, who knows? In a couple of years, they're going to be like, supporting the rail workers means you're a Stalinist. And it's like, well, yeah. the Stalinists do support the rail workers, but you're being incredibly <laughs> dishonest. Like, <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, to, to be clear, like, I mean, I think it would be cool if if the KCTU was supportive of you know sure. Cor- Korean yeah. re- peaceful Korean reunification, but they're clearly you know Yoon is only deploying this to red bait and attack the the mm-hmm. unions in in an incredibly cynical manner, and it's really gross. But thankfully, I gotta say, this is one thing I just want to. I feel like every time we talk about the labor movement in South Korea, I'm like more impressed. <laughs> uh, because like they've can you know they've faced military dictatorships they've like they've faced US repression and 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 all sorts of restriction on democratic rights and they keep fighting like cuz that's the thing they like you issued that back to work order and KCTU is just like no <laughs> we're not listening to that <laughs> they they the union responded saying the order amounts to a declaration of martial law and and after and they have since sued the government in response to the the back to work orders and in their their suit they, they they issued a statement saying quote it is the government and parliament that should return to work <laughs> boom <quote. laughs> which is great and then they just came out and said quote whatever outcome this strike may bring truckers will not stop their mission to ensure their right to live like decent human beings and are able to protect the safety of their families and fellow citizens and I think we can, you know, we can see why this back to work order comes when we look at what has the impact been of the mm-hmm. trucker strike on the Korean economy, which has been massive. Like uh, uh, just on Wednesday, so this is like several days ago, uh, Reuters reported that dozens of gas stations in the country had run out of fuel, and 60% of construction sites in the country had been forced to close down due to lack of cement and steel. And as of Thursday, the strike was estimated by the government to have cost the South Korean economy $1.2 billion, centered largely in industries like steel, oil, and auto production. Samsung, Kumho Tires, and many other major corporate giants have been forced to halt exports due to lack of available trucking. And so, like, this is really just highlighting, you know, exactly why the capitalist class is so scared of the power of logistical workers, because these, these folks are on strike for a week and they shut down the majority of all of the construction in the country. That's incredible. And, 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 so the, and that's why we see the government has you know, issued this back-to-work order for the cement truck drivers and is already threatening to expand that back-to-work order to the rest of the striking drivers if the strike continues. They've, they've even <laughs> refused to hold any negotiations while the strike is ongoing, which just shows that you... Just you know, doesn't, again, that like, doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, well, it's 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 hardball, you know, politics. It's 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 this idea that any strike is illegitimate, and it's it, they're doing the we don't negotiate we don't ne- with yeah, terrorists, exactly. But they're applying it to like workers in their own country. And, yeah, and it's and, funny because I I mean, as you were like before you even started saying it, I'm like, this is literally that exact same thing. They're 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 calling the the union workers terrorists. Yeah, well, and thankfully though. The union has just been like, okay, bet, fuck you. <laughs> We're going to stay on strike. And so uh, on Saturday, nearly 10,000 workers marched through the streets of Seoul in solidarity with the truckers, the truckers demanding the government stop its assault on them. And, and workers have also received an outpouring of support from workers' organizations around the world. The uh, International Transport Workers Federation General Secretary Stephen Cotton said, quote, emergency laws to force workers to return to work while they are exercising their fundamental right to strike constitutes forced labor, end quote. Uh, And so uh, 
whatever organizations that investigate forced labor might want to start investigating the United States. Yeah, um, I was about to say, it's like that that comparison, we, were, we drew the direct comparison between the rail workers and these trucking workers who are, who are on strike. And uh, yeah, it seems like we got a lot of forced labor going around. Yeah, and then the, the ILO, the International Labor Organization, which is like one of the biggest catch-all like union federations, um, uh, globally has has demanded that the government justify their actions, saying that they likely violate the ILO charter on freedom of assembly and forced labor. And so, like, again, I think it's important to look at, like, the way that supposedly, quote-unquote, again, the, the free world, the the Democrat, the, what is it, the, the international rules-based order, you know, the, the, the language that's used to talk about the, the system of global imperialism dominated by the United States, how these major, major components of it, the United States, Canada, the UK, South Korea, are all turned to the most repressive measures they can come up with in response to logistics workers and other vital workers trying to go on strike. And I think it's really exposing like uh, the, the level of crisis we're seeing right now in neoliberal capitalism where because of the the – the pursuit of endless profit without any restraint combined with the pursuit of, you know, an attempt to dominate the entire globe by the United States, you've got this incredible cost of living crisis that's hitting basically the entire world. And rather than even throw the most mild social democratic reforms in there to just, you know, quiet labor down a bit, it's all hard repression from all Mm -hmm. of these, these, these governments and I and and I also think that it's like important to point out that it's like this, these same measures are being taken by supposedly left wing governments in the United States, but as well as far right governments in Canada, South Korea, and the UK, showing that you know when it's a capitalist government, there really isn't that big of a difference between the so called left and right wings. Yeah, well, and just I'm sure that you've all have noticed that that is only the second story that we have covered so far. <laughs> as we are 40 minutes into the episode, we do have a bunch more things to cover, and so forgive us if we go through them kind of quickly. Welcome to the marathon, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so our next thing that we're going to be following up on is the HarperCollins strike, which is uh, workers who work for the publisher, HarperCollins, which is part of a small oligopoly within the United States of publishers who control the entire industry. And, uh, you know, they've, re- they've received a lot of uh, solidarity from writers and, uh, you know, other people who are associated with these companies. On Tuesday, November 29th, 150 literary agents who represent many major authors sent a letter to the publisher threatening to refuse to submit works to them unless the company reaches a deal with striking workers. Chelsea Hensley of the KT Liter- uh, Literary Agency uh, helped organize the la- the letter and told the Associated Press, I want them, HarperCollins, to know that even if they don't think they're seeing the effects of the strike now, they're definitely going to be seeing it come January, which is when agents will have the most new projects to share. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the militancy here is really important. I mean, we've heard from the workers themselves who have pointed out that at the same time that the company is refusing to meet the basic demands of a living wage for all these workers, the company was also happy to dish out a major book deal to famous fascist torture lawyer and current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Meanwhile, the entire cost of the raises that workers have asked for, going from $45,000 to $50,000, would be barely $1 million to the company. The company has instead cut off all contact with the 
Union since before Thanksgiving, which is just like, you know, I know there's like a lot of different ways you can uh, negotiate with the Union in bad faith, but then there's just simply refusing to even meet with them. And so we saw in a dispatch from the picket line published in N Plus One magazine, worker Rye White explained what they're fighting for. So they said, quote, many who have stuck it out in publishing have had their low wages cushioned by the help of a partner's income or supported from upper or middle class families. But workers without the benefits of whiteness, without well-paid spouses or partners, without families who have income to spare for their expenses month after month are too often pushed out. Living in a city like New York on $45,000 is difficult and inhumane. Trying to do it while battling racism and sexism on the daily is even more so. The union's position is clear. If this industry wants to retain the love and passion it runs on, something, the corporate powers that be, has got to give us more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really, yeah. That's a really, it was a really good, um, like, sort of... Uh, like strike diary that they published mm-hmm. in there. And so, you know, these folks have been on strike now for about a month. And the fact that HarperCollins won't even negotiate with them is just absolutely ridiculous. So I think it's really good to see these authors coming out and being like, okay, fine, you won't negotiate with the workers. You're not going to get to make any money off our books because we're going to go to a different publisher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do want to, I mean, there was the the mention of Ron DeSantis, and I just want to just quick point people in in the direction of the Eyes Left podcast, which just restarted because they just did their first episode that they've done in like two years. And they it was like an expose of how Ron DeSantis was complicit in exacerbating the torture program at Guantanamo Bay from someone who was, you know, a victim of that. And be careful, you know, if you're, you know, it is a very, very heavy episode, but I do want to, you know, suggest people go check that out if they want to hate Ron DeSantis more. But <laughs> in our next in, in story, happier news, yeah, yeah. we we do uh, have a, a follow up that is good news. There is, it's not just horrible news in this episode. Uh, so after months of legal wrangling and stupid delays, Activision Blizzard finally lost their last appeal, attempting to stop the counting of ballots in the union election for QA testers at Blizzard Albany. Workers had voted weeks ago, but their votes had been impounded while corporate legal challenges on the size of the bargaining unit worked their way through the system. Uh, Basically, this had been over uh, efforts by Activision Blizzard to say that you can't have an election just for QA workers. You have to put all the workers in the same unit in a gambit where they figured they would be able to, to win the election and crush the union if that was what happened. However, the NLRB rejected that, saying, quote, the testers have a separate department and separate supervision, perform a distinct function using distinct skills, and have notably lower wages than the excluded employees, end quote, uh, pointing out that Activision's objection made no sense. And so uh, the NLRB pointed out in their ruling that the developers that uh, Activision was trying to include in the same bargaining unit with the QA testers made between 34% and 417% higher salaries than the QA testers who make $20 an hour. I I did a little bit of mental math on that when I read it, and that's like the minimum is about $28 an hour, and the maximum is like $85 or something Mm -hmm. like that. That's Mm -hmm. that's a huge difference from $20 an hour. Yeah. and But as ridiculous as Activision Blizzard's legal challenges have been, we can see why they were so eager to stop the counting of these votes once they actually revealed what the votes were because uh, it turns out the QA team was unanimously in favor of joining the Games Workers Alliance, which is backed by the CWA, and they voted 14 to nothing in favor of unionizing. So So cool. 
We lo- we love a unanimous score on this show. We need a, we need to get a chalkboard going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, absolutely. So uh, Amanda Laven, who is a QA tester at Blizzard Albany, told the Washington Post about their long journey, saying, "Quote: We knew we were going to win, but it's still extremely exciting and gratifying, especially because tomorrow marks the first anniversary of when we started organizing." And That's amazing yeah. to get your union and have it be unanimous in a year. Very impressive organizing. I, and it, and, I'm incredibly impressed. And it doesn't just help these workers. It also helps bolster any other workers who are organizing in the games industry. So, like, we see the workers at Raven Software who have repeatedly been portrayed as an anomaly by their company in the anti-union propaganda they've been spreading. And this really, like, puts the lie to that. It's like, no, you know, once you have two going and one of them is successful, it's like it can be done. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And it also cuts through the lies that we've heard from Microsoft about how their, quote-unquote, neutrality agreement is supposedly something that's going to help workers ostensibly more than a union which if you're a listener of this show for more than one episode you should know by now is absolute <laughs> fucking bullshit so we, we heard from brock davis who is another tester at the company and uh, Brock told Was- the Washington Post, quote, the journey that it took to get here was a long and winding one. This means on top of the Raven victory, the gaming industry can unionize if people stay together and have solidarity, which is like, we love to see it. And uh, hopefully soon I'll be able to buy nearly all of my games from unionized game studios. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I saw, I, lo- I saw that you retweeted that, the classic tweet that I do think exemplifies exactly our feelings mm-hmm. on the video game industry and unions, which is I want shorter games with worse graphics made by people who have more free time and make more money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or are paid more to work less. And I'm not yeah, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Cause <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but it's like, those are actually all really good things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so for our final follow-up, I promise, even though it's a big one, <laughs> we're going to check in on the biggest strike in the United States right now that's now moving into its uh, fourth week, which is the strike by graduate students, postdocs, academic researchers, and other student workers at the University of California system, which has continued uh, due to the intransigence of the U- University of California administration. The, the workers represented by, I believe, three UAW locals, 2865, 5810, and SRU, which I believe is a special locals f- specifically for student researchers. Uh, it was kind of hard parsing that, actually, to be honest. Um, but they remain on the picket lines. And I got to say, some of the strike tactics that some of these, these workers have busted out – incredibly badass like just to start with over thanksgiving weekend at the ucla cal football game striking workers scaled the upper deck scaffolding above the stadium to hang a massive banner reading flag on the play unfair labor practice hashtag fair uc now hashtag uaw on strike and they released like drone footage of this and it's like this this sounds like oh it's a banner drop trust me most people would not want to do this banner drop. Like they had to go up in like full, like climbing harnesses and stuff in the middle of a game. So they had to get this stuff like past security mm-hmm. like that. It was a big, big undertaking. And, and I was very impressed that they were I, able to pull that off. I just imagine sneaking it in piece by piece in a bunch of different people's bags. It was really, yeah. really impressive. 
Yeah, well, and they didn't stop there. I mean, they kept going. On Monday, November 28th, uh, workers also confronted UC San Diego Chancellor Pradeep Khosla on campus and demanded that he ask the university president to negotiate a fair deal with them. And rather than listening to the workers who make this entire university system possible in the first place, Khosla instead called the police and threatened the workers with arrest. So these workers are not just risking life and limb. They're also risking arrest. They're really basically willing to go through anything to get their message out there. Exactly, including uh, occupying various buildings across Mm -hmm. the UC network, uh, from cafeterias to HR buildings, to demonstrate their commitment to the strike. On Friday, hundreds of faculty standing in solidarity with the strikers announced that they would be withholding over 24,000 grades until the strike is resolved. The administration has threatened the faculty with retaliation for supporting the workers. Uh, One major development that could move towards a resolution of the strike was announced on Tuesday, November 29th, uh, and we're recording on Monday, December 5th, that the UAW Local 5810 announced the bargaining team had reached a tentative agreement with the university covering two of the main categories of striking workers, postdoctoral workers and academic researchers. These workers make up approximately 25% of the total striking workforce, and so we're going to go over some of the details on this, and then also kind of a cool tactic that they use despite getting their TA. Right. So in this, uh, in the details of this portion of the agreement uh, released by the union, postdoctorates would see the following changes. Uh, one, a 20% salary increase over the first year of the contract, rising to 57% over the five-year deal for the lowest paid workers, amounting uh, to an average 7.2% increase after the first year. They would also get parental leave going from four weeks to eight weeks, along with child care subsidies of $2,500 a year, up from the current level of $0 a year. Uh, they would also receive lengthened appointments from one year to two years for more stability and longer visas for international students, and as well they would receive new contract language against harassment in the workplace, more protections for immigrant students, and a commitment by the school to provide free transit passes within three years and a 15% discount for uh, electronic bicycles. And academic researchers would see the following changes. Uh, First, a 29% pay increase over the five-year deal, with some workers' pay rising by $20,000 by the end of the contract. Also, parental and family leave pay rising to 100% of normal wages, up from where it currently sits at 70. And as they would also receive similar new contract language on harassment, transit passes, and job security to what was just covered in the agreement for the postdoctorates. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be, that's, you know, Again, a quarter of the workers, the mm-hmm. other 75% are still negotiating. Um, so, like, and a big part without those remaining folks, the about uh, 36,000 other workers who do not have an agreement that's been reached, the big thing there has been they've been stuck apart on wages. So uh, UAW 5810 President Neil Sweeney hailed the bargaining agreements deal saying, quote, these agreements represent a new best-in-class model that will improve quality of life and the quality of research for scientists across the U.S., end quote. However, I will say I have seen some members of the rank and file who have not been happy about this deal and have decried the bargaining team for giving too many concessions to UC. Specifically in the case of the deal with 5810, the criticisms that I've personally seen have been that the child care subsidies are too low and were dropped from their much higher previous demands without um, you know, significant concessions from the university side of things mm-hmm. uh, and critiques that, that the pay rises while like – decent 
are not, you know, significantly higher than were negotiated, than things were looking like before the strike. But um, we will see, I think, ultimately how representative those concerns are of the group of workers who are under 5810 when the deal goes to vote to a vote. The other big one that I've seen, and this is across the board as a concern, because we'll get into the negotiations that's been going on with the other parts of the UAW, has been the dropping of a demand for COLA, because you might have noticed when John was reading out all the details there that some of them, especially for the postdocs, like have some pretty good, like a 20% raise in, in year one. Like that's that's it. That's good. Like that's a that's a good wage increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know these workers have been suffering with low wages for a long time. So it's a lot of that's making up for raises they should have been getting. But that's still pretty impressive. But none of that includes cost of living adjustments for future uh, high levels of inflation. And that was dropped from the agreement, like from the original set of demands that included it with fifty eight ten. And there's a concern that that move to drop it from the agreement that was made with 5810 influenced the bargaining teams of the rest of the workers to drop COLA from their demands as well. So, like, there's an article published in Truthout uh, by a PhD student, uh, Magali Miranda Alcazar, who's called out the unwillingness of some of the members of the bargaining team, or, sorry, who called out the willingness of some on the bargaining team to concede on key demands without matching concessions from the university. Uh, because, f- for instance, uh, the current state of bargaining with UAW 2865, which represents the bulk of the remaining workers who do not have a tentative agreement, they voted their te- within the bargaining team, which is a team of 19 people, voted 10 to 9, so by one vote, to drop the demand for a COLA and to drop their demand for a minimum wage from a minimum wage of $54,000 to a minimum wage of $43,000, which is a big drop. Like, that's mm-hmm. you're, you're conceding $11,000. And they also have removed the demand for health care coverage for dependents and slashed the demand for child care reimbursement nearly in half from an original demand of $6,000 a year to $3,300. Um, and, and the thing is, like, because... The whole idea with a bargaining team is like you come in without you you come in with a really high demand and you plan to work that down to where you really think you're going to get. But the idea of doing that is that by making those concessions, you force the other side to come up from what they were originally offering. Mm-hmm. However, in giving away all of these concessions, the only thing that the team has gotten back from you see is an offer to increase the starting wage for these workers from twenty four thousand dollars to $28,000, uh, which is nowhere near enough for anybody to live on, really anywhere in the country, much less in California, and even more or less in the cities where most of these campuses are. Right. And then another major concern was that of the need for improvements for disabled workers. The formation called the Justice Coalition has been working to ensure that the new contract includes language around excess needs rather than reasonable accommodations in order to ensure that the university is is required to ensure that its facilities and services are accessible to all workers, not forcing a burden onto disabled workers themselves. The language would mandate universal remote learning access for students without medical document documentation, demanding specific pandemic protections like the reversal of the UC's ban on professionals being able to ask students to mask in class. These proposals were dropped in, in the more conservative proposal by the bargaining team that also dropped the demand for COLA. In the statement... Yeah. 
uh, in a statement, the Justice Coalition said, The Justice Coalition will continue to object to a tentative agreement which is not sufficient in providing disabled workers with equi equitable protections and workplace safety. Moving forward, the Justice Coalition will continue to organize union members, maintain discussions with bargaining team members to urge them to reconsider the TA, and fervently campaign for a no vote on the proposal on the proposed contract if necessary to ensure that disability justice needs, living wage demands, and labor rights are adequately represented in the contract. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously there's, you, you were talking about a bargaining unit that has 48,000 workers in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's probably not the most surprising thing in the world that there are disagreements on, <laughs> on where the uh, concessions could be made. And I think it's pretty clear from the number of voices that we're seeing that the bargaining committees move by one vote to choose a much more conservative proposal for their like starting line for a new TA uh, is not in line with the wishes of the majority of the workers. So we'll see how this plays out. Like the, um, the TA for workers who are represented by local 5810 does not stop those workers from striking. They've specifically said that uh, even if the local 5810 workers vote to agree to the TA, that they will not return to work until all of the workers have finished their strike. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, that's kind of what I was we'll, uh, that's kind of what I was referring to when I said that they, you know, still had something that was that was kind of cool. Like, you know, even if they do get their if if they do ratify it, they can stay on strike until everybody gets their contract. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think it's going to be really telling to see how the vote goes on the 5810 tentative agreement and I think it's likely to have a strong influence on how the negotiation goes with the rest of the workers. So, but that being said, since the fact that, you know, the more conservative portion of the bargaining team dropped the demand for wages for these researchers and other students by $11,000 and still the UC administrators will not come up to that demand, that $43,000 is apparently too ridiculous of a demand for a, a university that brings in literally billions of dollars off of these workers' labor. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that that does not necessarily point to uh, a very swift end to uh, this strike. All right. Well, speaking of the conservatism of intransigent employers... The New York Times. So <laughs> <That's right. laughs> on Friday, December 2nd, we saw workers at the New York Times who were organized as part of the CWA's News Guild, and they announced their intention to stage a 24-hour strike, which would be the first at the paper in nearly 50 years in the case that a new deal is not reached by December 8th. Over 1,000 workers at the Times have been working without a contract for nearly two years since theirs expired in March of 2021. It is, frankly, a disgrace how many workers we have to cover on mm -hmm. this show who have been working without contracts for extended periods of time. And, of course, it's not their fault. It is 100% on the company. So the main issues that these workers are fighting for are fair wages, saving their worker pensions, rejecting an increase in worker evaluations, and fighting for the right to bargain over return to the office policy. So we're seeing a lot of bread and butter issues and also a lot of issues that we like to talk about more on this show uh, that don't get highlighted a lot, which are really just control of your workplace and, and control of uh, the time and the situation that you spend in the office. So currently, the New York Times is only offering these workers a 2.75% annual wage increase, which would not cover inflation in a regular year and definitely won't cover the inflation of this year over the entire life of the contract. So in their statement in which they announced their intent to strike, 
The workers pointed out that while the company continues to reject their demands for a minimum wage of $65,000 per year, not exactly a luxury salary in the extremely expensive market of New York City, uh, they have spent $150 million on stock buybacks just this year. That would cause... That would cover the entire cost of all the union's demands over the life of the contract. And additionally, while the company balks at paying workers a living wage, they gave their top three executives raises of over 30%. So it's kind of like every cliche in the book <laughs> that we that we talk about on this show of companies that are like, no, 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 it's not in the budget. We can't give you your union demands. Anyway, we're doing a massive stock buyback program. Here's 30% raises for our top executives. And um, yeah, just keep working without a contract, please. Well, and, and meanwhile, not only are they not, you know, refusing to give workers a, a, a living minimum wage, mm-hmm. they're also trying to end employee pensions mm-hmm. and force these workers all onto 401ks, which, as we've talked about on the show, are a scam. Uh, while also, at the same time, slashing company contributions to those 401ks as well. So Andrea Zagata, who's a senior staff editor, said, quote, Our pension is important to so many people of all ages. I cannot believe that the company would propose cutting it and say it's for our own good. We're smarter than that, mm-hmm. end quote. Yeah, um, I mean, side note, other- I, I saw a poster today in a workplace that was like, the benefits of 401ks, and I was like, none. <laughs> End of poster. <laughs> yeah, well, there are benefits to your boss. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But, um, and I mean, and, and finally, the company has been attempting to force all of the newsroom workers back into the office five days a week, even though the pandemic hasn't gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these workers, there's nothing about their job that requires them to be in the office that they can't do it from home. And so the union has strongly objected to chain, to uh, attempts to unilaterally change attendance policies without negotiations. And hundreds of workers have pledged to continue working remotely until the company agrees to bargain over the issue. So Susan DeCarava, president of the News Guild of New York, summed up the reasons that these workers are threatening to have their first strike in nearly 50 years uh, at the end of this week, saying, quote, Our members at the New York Times, from security guards who keep everyone in the building safe to the journalists who keep the world informed, know the value of their work. Now it's time for management to demonstrate in good faith at the bargaining table that they also understand our value. I hope Times management takes this opportunity to address our demands for livable wages, strong retirement benefits, and a workplace that corrects discriminatory practices with a contract our members will approve, end quote. And so, you know, as much as I will complain about the New York Times being a mouthpiece for U.S. imperialism, these workers still deserve a living wage. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully the the company takes these the strike threat seriously. Otherwise, you know, we'll actually be seeing the first strike at the company in 50 years at the end of this week. Yeah. yeah. And th- speaking of very consequential strikes, we're going to be moving to Minnesota nurses who are who have struck back in September. There were 15,000 of them who were demanding a fair contract. They went on a three-day strike back then. But now as their negotiations have stalled, they have decided that they're going to authorize a open ULP strike. Uh, these nurses have been working without a contract since the summer, and the CEOs of their various hospitals have refused to agree to fair wage increases. Uh, Mary C. Turner, president of Minnesota Nurses, the Minnesota Nurses Association, said in a statement, Our hospitals are in crisis, and our CEOs have failed nurses and patients. They have failed to solve the crisis of patient care, and they have failed to solve the crisis of working conditions pushing nurses away from the bedside nurses are fighting to win contracts that will help nurses stay on the job to provide patients with exceptional care they with the with the exceptional care they deserve 
hospital CEOs with multi-billion dollar salaries can afford to put patients before profits in our hospitals and do right by Minnesota nurses. Yeah. And I mean, these these nurses aren't taking it lying down. They have accused the hospitals of colluding to suppress wages, trying to split workers off from the union as scabs and refusing to negotiate in good faith by withholding important bargaining data. I believe all of them. Uh, They've also called out the hospitals (laughs) for paying exorbitant salaries to CEOs and administrators while slashing staffing and holding nursing wages stagnant. Again, this is filling out the whole bingo card, just like the last story. So in their press release, the union unflinchingly provided a convenient chart showing the pay ratios between the CEOs and average RNs at their hospitals. On average, the CEOs made 20 times the average wage of the nurses who were actually doing the vital work of helping helping patients while the highest paid CEO of four of the hospitals James Hereford was making over 40 times the average nurse and so the unions have given 10 days notice that if the hospitals do not reach a fair deal with them by December 11th the 15,000 nurses will be forced to strike with plans for the strike to last at least three weeks we can likely expect to see many of the same anti-labor talking points used by the Democrats to attack rail workers rolled out against these nurses in the next few days as the strike approaches. And not just against the rail workers. As we talked about, we see these points rolled out in South Korea and in the UK mm-hmm. and in Canada against any number of different industries. So, yeah, you can expect to see this stuff ramp up quite steadily. Um, yeah, like when you start hearing stories about how these patients, these nurses you know they're not putting patients first mm-hmm. that they're they're putting patients at risk by going on strike not true it's bullshit don't listen to that it's the it's the hospital ceos that have put this situation into motion by deciding that one guy is worth more than 40 nurses despite the fact that i guarantee that if you fired james hereford Nothing would go wrong at any of those hospitals where if you fired even a fraction of the 40 nurses his salaries count for, the whole place would just fall apart. Right. Well, and, you know, that's just his salary, too. CEOs also have other ways of taking money out Mm -hmm. of companies. They have like expense accounts and perks and all of these other things. Like it's probably much more egregious than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to continue our coverage on logistical workers striking, we're going to go down to Mobile, Alabama, where uh, nearly a thousand dock workers at the port of Mobile in Alabama have been on strike for two weeks now after their mediation between the Internet or uh, yeah, their mediation between the International Longshoremen's Association Local 1410 and the CSA Equipment Company broke down. These workers have been operating without a contract for four years. Yet another example of of a huge amount of time that the workers have gone without a contract. They're now demanding a long uh, long backed up issues to be resolved before they return to work for CSA. After after a month of federal mediation failed to convince CSA to agree to the workers' reasonable terms, the workers declared that they... Uh, have had enough and have decided to hit the picket lines and did so on November Wednesday, November 23rd. Yeah, and so Mobile has been one of the fastest growing ports in the country uh, really since the start of the pandemic because, you know, folks have heard all the stories about the supply chain backups in the U.S. And, and the, so all the Western ports have, of course, been clogged and been completely slammed 24-7 
constantly since the beginning of the pandemic just due to high demand. So there has been an expansion in places trying to unload at East Coast and, and Gulf ports. And, and so Mobile has seen a huge increase in the amount of cargo that it's handling. And so port operators have taken advantage of this by trying to rely on as much non-union labor as possible, the eroding the control that organized workers previously held on the job and lowering living standards for all dock workers. Uh, the, the main issues of contention in this particular strike for these, these ILA uh, workers are back pay for the past several years, union control of work at the port, and the company hiring more workers to ensure a safe workload. So per reporting in AL.com, the port has been using non-union labor to tie up vessels to the docks since the management of the port changed hands in 2008, which I just want to make a side note here. The fact that like ports are privately run mm-hmm. is so weird uh, to me. <laughs> like, yeah, we're just going to put this like five people, they get to own this gigantic logistics port, and that's not seen as a threat to the supply chains of the country, but workers saying uh, we literally never get to see our families, that's that's not a threat. But anyway, um, so the union wants the, the work that has been shifted to non-union uh, employees of the port to go back to its workers. And so Mark Bass, uh, president of Local 1410, told Ale.com, quote, the union position is, any work we're engaged in, we expect to tie up those vessels, end quote. And so they also haven't received a single raise over the past four years when they've been operating without a contract. But even more than that, is the fact that over those four years, the company has halted pension contributions and other benefit payments, just refusing to make them because there isn't a new contract. And so the the union is demanding that the company pay its appropriate retroactive contributions to workers' pensions, but the CSA is refusing to pay back pension contributions for the first two years that workers were without a contract, saying that they'll only pay for the last two years. I don't really understand how one justifies stealing half of your (laughs) contractually obligated pension contributions, but... They're American. uh, They've decided... Sometimes I think the the company doesn't necessarily throw out the option that helps them the most. They throw out the option that makes the least fucking sense, because if they can get part of that through, then it opens the door for them to do even more nonsensical fucking shit down the road. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, there's so, a long history of, of the United States looting people, looting whether it be countries or, you know, workers' funds or, you know, forcing workers into un- unreasonable conditions, so. Yeah, so, and then the last point that workers are really, are, are, are fighting for is to make sure that crew sizes for unloading these ships are safe because basically with all the other companies that operate at the port of mobile they are the ILA has contractual obligations that work units be a minimum of 18 workers because that's what they have determined is the safe rate so that you have enough people making so you have people to you know monitor that everything's being done safely so nobody gets hurt uh, but the CSA has refused to accept that and is demanding to allow to have work units of 17 workers, uh, which would then, you know, of course, allow them to undercut the other suppliers by having one fewer person per unit, which means one fewer salary per unit. Uh, and and But that also would then lead to overworking each one of those 17 workers and making each one of those crews less safe. And so the union has refused to accept unsafe crews, uh, which is a big part of why they are on strike. And... To point out, you know, how adversarial these relations have been over this these past four years, CSA has offered such bad contracts that the workers in ILA Local 1410 have voted down three contracts in the last three years. Wow. 
I will say though, when I was, when I was looking into this strike, there has not been much publicity of this, despite the fact that it's like, again, almost a thousand workers at a really busy East coast port. Uh, and the ILA itself, I haven't really seen a lot of, of like publications or statements from them about this. And I would also say like, while the, the shitty contracts and the workers voting them down three times in the last three years does tell you how adversarial the company has been. The fact that the ILA bargaining team sent those three contracts to the workers to vote on. I, I'm like, after, at least after they rejected the first one or the first two, I would think you would say, okay, well, here's the, 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 the minimum that the workers will accept. And we're not going to accept any less than that. So, uh, yeah, it, I'm just, it, I, the, all the reporting on it does lead me to question like how committed, uh, maybe the, some of the, the folks are in the leadership to this strike, but regardless, the workers are on strike now and they vowed not to return to work on CSA handled ships until the company agrees to save team sizes and pays them what they're owed. So all solidarity with these dock workers, uh, fuck this company for trying to force them to work unsafely and for stealing their pension for four years. Like absolute, like that should be like, that should bring up criminal charges. Mm -hmm. Like you are literally stealing people's retirement from them. It's, it's, wild yeah it's absolutely yeah. disgusting yeah and then uh in another follow-up we've already kind of alluded to the way that many different places have been attacking workers and we're going to go back to canada where uh the supreme court has struck down the anti-worker wage cap law that the ford government uh said that they were going to appeal so while qp may have backed down from the militant strike action uh, in the face of vigorous attacks from ontario from the ontario government workers across the province won major won a major legal victory this week when a provincial court struck down a right-wing 2019 law that had capped the allowable wage increase for public sector workers to 1% per year, meaning yeah, that they made it basically a, illegal for there to be any real raises since inflation is always or is nearly always higher than 1%. In fact, I looked back at the past many, many years, the lowest it's been is 0.7 over the period of a year, which means that like a 0.3% raise, assuming it's still 1% at that maximum, is such a minor uh, increase that it's it's negligible. And every other yeah. year other than that needs to be a wage cut. Yeah, absolutely. Like capping wage increases at 1% is functionally saying that uh, we are going to ensure that you only get wage cuts from now on. That, mm -hmm. that, is, that is basically what a law like that is saying. But thankfully, this law that was only passed a few years ago um, is now no more uh, because on Tuesday, November 29th, this, co this court declared that the law infringed on the collective bargaining rights of public workers. Imagine that, a court saying you're not allowed to do that. Very rare. <laughs> Genuinely. And they said that the act was, quote, not a reasonable limit on a right that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, end quote. Uh, Judge Marcus Conan said in a ruling that the provincial government had claimed the restriction was necessary while simultaneously giving away handouts to businesses and the rich in the forms of tax cuts that greatly exceeded any savings to the public treasury by capping workers' wages, which was just demonstration that there was no financial emergency that demanded such a draconian restriction on workers' wages. Mm -hmm. So, And continuing in the ruling, Conan said, and this is yet another case of him like, boy, uh... Imagine if the U.S. government listened to this, saying, quote, 
As noted, the right to strike is constitutionally protected. Although inconvenient, the right to strike is a component of a free and democratic society, end quote. Which, uh, yes, I just wish more of the governments actually accepted that. Right. Um, Well, and I mean, uh, you know, we've been seeing unions and other workers groups who have been fighting against this law for years uh, coming together and hailing this ruling as as a positive thing. So while the Ford government has vowed to appeal the ruling, labor groups have called on them instead to simply not do that. Uh, (laughs) So Green Party leader Mike Schreiner told the CBC, quote, it's time to consign Bill 124 to the dustbin of history and start investing in the people who care for us every day, end quote. And I think that's uh, really great. Love to hear it. And so these unions representing the over 700,000 workers affected by this bill say that they plan to sue for back wages now that the law has been repealed and fight for stronger contracts in the future without the restraints of the raise cap. While the government uh, is busy fear-mongering that the repeal could cost the province $8.4 billion over five years, this is in in fact far less than the government has handed out to wealthy interests uh, not once but many, many, many times. Yeah. 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 Well, so really glad to see this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And in kind of exciting news, we've been talking about the UAW and their elections. And we talked about the one member, one vote campaign mm-hmm. and how uh, Members United was running a slate of candidates for a reform. Uh, you know, basically reforms of the UAW, originally led by UAWD or Unite All Workers for Democracy, we've seen that many of the people on this slate have just straight up won, and others are slated to win in right in runoff elections. Yeah. So this is the other, the other, the other of the other big stories this week. Uh, kind of everything seemed to happen at once in labor. Uh, last week because yeah as you said lena we've been covering uawd's fight to get one member one vote for a while now and and like workers have been voting by mail for the last month Uh, there have been multiple live stream debates between the various candidates for office and campaigning from the reformers that has exposed the corrupt and class collaborationist leadership of the admin caucus, which has resulted in weaker contracts and a smaller, less powerful UAW. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about revelations that came out in The Intercept that the admin caucus had been concealing the size of union finances, including the strike fund, from union memberships in order to make sure that workers were less likely to strike. Um, And despite the fact, and I got to say, I called this one wrong. I was just like, come out ahead on that one. Like the, the, the admin caucus had all the advantages of being the incumbents. Again, they've controlled the the union for almost 40 years uh, entirely at this point. And so I going into this had figured, Hey, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of, of discontent in the union and the members unite will probably win a couple of posts, probably some of the lower ones, but it'll Mm -hmm. serve as like a really good first showing. And then in the next convention, they'll be able to say, look what our folks did once they got in there, they were not corrupt. They were fighting for the membership and then you can build to a movement. Uh, Thankfully, I was wrong, <laughs> and these guys just came out fucking swinging. Uh, so on Friday, December 2nd, after most of the vo- votes had been counted, UAWD and just the, the broad reform slate of UAW Members United were able to announce that essentially in every single international executive board spot that they ran a candidate for, they either won outright or have advanced to a runoff for the position, which is incredible. Yeah, like, that's huge. They, they they only advanced candidates for uh like 
uh, I think a little over half of the positions. They advanced candidates for president, secretary treasurer, two vice presidents, and three regional directors. And apart from the president, where there's going to be a runoff, and one of the regional directors where there will also be a runoff, they won every single one of those posts. Yeah, and which for the president, is amazing. Yeah, and for the president situation, I mean, the actual the other people who have you know who didn't win, who are not not allowed or who are not part of that runoff, have backed the uh, Sean Fain slate to. Uh, possibly win and if that is the case if let's say all of those votes go towards sean Payne, it's going to be a blowout for uh yeah. for them mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's wild so because clearly the uawd platform of no corruption no tears no concessions resonated with the membership of the uaw i mean like margaret mock who will be the next secretary treasurer of the uaw she won going away <laughs> like two to one it wasn't even close Ooh. Um, like Rich Boyer and Mike Booth, who are the UAW members United uh, candidates for the three vice president slots. They they advance two candidates, three people get elected. Uh, they each were by far the most popular candidates for vice president. They each won over 4,000 more votes than any of the other candidates. Uh, Brandon Mancia uh, won a similar margin of victory to take uh, directorship of UAW Region 9A, taking over 60% of the vote against the incumbent admin caucus representative. Uh, the closest, uh, like, outright win was when LaShawn English took 53% uh, of the vote uh, to unseat the incumbent admin caucus director of Region 1. And then, so, in addition to Sean Fain advancing to the runoff against Ray Curry for president, Daniel Vincente is going to a runoff for directorship of Region 9, although he took 10% more of the votes in the three-way race in the first round. So it's looking very likely that that he will be able to come away with the victory there. Which t- which means As that were- there will be a, a, a full victory of the UAWD Members United slate. 100% yeah, and, and- victory. <laughs> Yeah, because the the closest one is is president, as you were saying, uh, because Ray Curry and Sean Fain in the first round each got about thirty nine percent of the votes. Mm-hmm. You needed to have fifty percent or more to win in the first round, so they are going to advance to a head to head runoff. But as you were saying, Lena, like the we really do expect the other three candidates who ran to uh, recommend that their voters back Sean Fain, and the one who of those three who got the most votes, Brian Keller, has already come out and told his voters that they that he thinks they should support Sean Fain in the runoff. And his votes alone would be enough added to Fain's to uh, create a majority and win. So it really does look like Sean Fain has a really good chance of taking the presidency. Which would, as you were saying, Lena, be a total UAW Members United reform slate sweep. Which is just, I never expected it to be this big of a victory. This is like, this is a monumental change. No, I mean, yeah, when you add this up with the change in leadership in the Teamsters and, you know, fairly big unions coming up out of nowhere like uh, ALU, it's like, I think this really represents, it's maybe a slight exaggeration to say it represents a sea change in the American labor movement, but like, it's getting there. It's like a fundamental shift. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's, you know, we've done our series on the decline of American unionism, the rank and file upsurges in the 70s. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how there's been decades and decades in so many major American unions of class collaborationist contracts that gave away massive concessions. They let in all these tears. It's just making things Mm -hmm. worse and worse and worse. And, And 
and over that period, you know, the, the UAW has shrank because automakers turned to both automation and outsourcing. And the union did very little to fight back against that. And so, like, since the admin caucus has had total control of the union for those last 34 years, they're the ones who are really responsible for that. And 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 clearly, the membership feels that way because they got their fucking asses kicked in this election. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, and I mean the only the only positions on the executive board the admin caucus has won or looks like they could win, except for maybe the president, and that's if if Curry somehow sweeps out a win. The only other ones that they've won are ones they face no opposition. So I mean, if anything, I think it's possible you could have even seen a bigger victory just if the, the members united had more time and been able to put together a full slate. So. Yeah, I, I think this is incredibly impressive work by the UAWD, by everybody who backed the UAW Members United Slate. Like the amount of organizing to to make this happen in the very first one member one vote election is incredible. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, and we have uh, Margaret Mock who is discussing the message sent by the votes, who said the UAW leadership still has the remnants of the smell of corruption. They're still saying that the local leadership. Find out what management wants and give it to them instead of saying, mm-hmm. hey, what do you, what do your members want? Uh, that's another form of them losing touch with the shop floor. And the shop floor, so far, they're speaking. They're speaking in the votes being cast, end quote, basically highlighting how the members have said, we need this reform. Yeah. And I mean, the timing is a big part of what makes this so monumental because the big UAW contracts, like the big contracts with uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which is the um, the umbrella group that took over Chrysler a couple of years ago, uh, that is all set to be negotiated next year. So a strike at any of the major automakers is now vastly more likely than it was before the results of these elections. And and Sean Fain emphasized that when he uh, said in an interview with Labor Notes, quote, we are putting the big three on notice. They should get ready to negotiate with the UAW where the membership is back in charge of this union. Yeah, badass. Absolutely. And the runoff election for... Uh, Sean Fain's uh, potential election is going to be early next year, so I'm not exactly sure when those contracts are coming up in coordination with the actual bringing in of these people, but uh, almost certainly there will be a huge change in the way that those negotiations happen. But... As usual, once we get to the end of our stories, we are going to be following up with Starbucks. And so Starbucks has once again drawn rebukes from the NLRB this week, this time over the company's refusal to bargain with workers at the Seattle Roastery after they won their election back in April. As uh, reported by Josh Josh Idelson in Bloomberg, the board unanimously ruled that the company, quote, admit its refusal to bargain and that the company must immediately recognize uh, the union and bargain in good faith. (laughs) I I love the board's ruling that the company uh, literally admits its refusal to bargain. It's like that meme where the guy's like, oh, my God, he admitted it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, however, the company has already announced its intention to appeal the ruling, further extending the long wait for the workers at the site to bargain with the company and continuing their goal of driving pro-union workers out 
via attrition, basically, you know, making them, you know, wait and wait and wait to get any of their victories. But there have been victories. Yeah. I mean, like, just a day after that ruling, which, and just again, for people to understand, like, what this dispute is over, <laughs> this whole thing is is Starbucks just coming up with any legal technicality they can. With the roastery, they're like, well, we didn't think you should do a mail-in election, but you did one, so clearly that vote doesn't count. <laughs> like, it's it's the, the most transparent bullshit. Because, again, this was a unanimous ruling by the board, which included a, like, republic, even a GOP member of the board was like, yeah, you, this is illegal. <laughs> so, like, it's extremely blatant. But mm-hmm. So just a day later, on Thursday, December 1st, the board filed another complaint against the company, this time for union busting in Great Neck, New York, and demanding that the company reinstate a worker they illegally fired for organizing. So we will see how that one goes, and maybe this worker will be, I believe, the 13th worker who got their job back after being illegally fired. Um, we did get... A, a, incredibly rare story of successful bargaining at a union store this week uh, in, in Oklahoma City, where the Oklahoma City Free Press reported that the 36th and May Starbucks location, which was closed for renovations for a period this year after workers won their union election, that as part of the legally required process, but often violated <laughs> by the company following their win, Uh, the company did actually negotiate with them for how to handle the workers' temporary transition to other stores. And the union was able to win lots of protections for the workers while that store was closed. Specifically, the workers demanded and won job protections for all workers, reimbursement for additional mileage to their new temporary store during renovations, uh, maintaining their previous average weekly hours, which that's a big one because we've seen so many of these times where every chance they get, Starbucks transfers a worker to a different store who they know is pro-union and then cuts their hours so that they can't support themselves. So that sort of protection for their average hours is huge. That's a big win by the, by the union. Um, then also protection of workers accrued sick time and their uh, previously approved vacation requests. And of course, importantly, a right to return to the store following completions of its renovations. And so, you know, while of course, Star Wars United has already shown its power in the many, many concessions that the company has been forced to give to all of its workers in a desperate attempt to keep non-union stores from unionizing. This is just another example of the ways that having a union can be so important for workers, even when you have a company that's as intransigent and, and, and breaking as many labor laws as Starbucks is. Mm -hmm. And, and then of course, to finish off, there were a couple of more union victories this week. So on Tuesday, November 30th, workers at the auto plaza and main store in green Bay, Wisconsin won their election. And then on Friday, workers in Bellingham, Washington won their union election 15 to 6, bringing us to a total, I believe, of 265 unionized Starbucks locations. Yeah. Hell yeah. So awesome. Road to 300. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Well, and then also with the end of all of our episodes, we do a meme review. This one is very specially formatted entirely around rail strike memes. Oh, nice. Yeah. There, there was a, there was a lot of discourse about the rail strike, which meant there was a lot of quality memes about the rail strike. So, uh, 
we'll start with one that's a, this is a Star Trek Deep Space Nine meme. Uh, there's an abbreviation in this of FCA, which uh, to to be the nerdiest person on the show stands for Ferengi Commerce Authority. <laughs> oh, okay, um, I was like, I don't even know what this one was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this is this is a discussion between if anybody has watched Deep Space Nine between Rom the Ferengi uh, and uh, Colonel or not Colonel Lieutenant O'Brien. Uh, who are discussing the potential for workers to strike, saying, so it starts, it's a four panel. You've got Rom, then O'Brien, then Rom, then O'Brien. And so it starts with, well, the, the FCA voted. They said we can't strike. And O'Brien responds, well, then you should definitely strike. And then Ron asks, well, well won't that disrupt the economy? And then laser eyes O'Brien, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the thing. Like, there's so many things this week where they're just like, oh, the railroad workers would disrupt the economy. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what a strike's for. Well, I mean, that's exactly what our next meme says. And there's been a lot of, like, Joe Biden eating ice cream versions of this going <laughs> yeah. around. I saw a great one about, like, $80 billion in weapons. But this one just has him there, and it says, a railroad strike would cripple the economy. And then you have the uh, Sabo cat, and it says, is that so? <laughs> Up and at him, boys. We have all the power. <laughs> 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 yeah, and then there's my favorite one, which came out this week, which is the. This is it had a couple different formats, but it's Marks with a giant hammer and giant sickle, and he's like muscly and like mm-hmm. wa- like it's, kind it's, of running at the the screen. Yeah, it's it's like the it's like X, like X Men version yeah. of of Marks. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and uh, it just says. I'm joining the war on Christmas on the side of rail strike, which Hell is just yeah. a, a reformat <laughs> because it's like uh, I joined the war on Christmas on the side of you know communism. I believe is is right. the original version. <laughs> well, but this- I've also seen though because one one that I've seen I, I, there's another like combo of this where it's I'm joining the war on Christmas on the side of drugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking love it. Well, yeah, speaking of custom we memes, the-, the next one is one that I actually made from scratch um, <laughs> because I saw that uh, that with that thing that we were talking about getting reported in uh, WSWS, uh, where the one of the committees was like, "We reserve the right to organize." So <laughs> it's the Yu-Gi-Oh meme, and it has Seto Kaiba, and it's <laughs> he's holding up the card, and it says, "It's now illegal for you to strike." And then you see Yugi confidently holding his card, and he flips it around, and it says. We don't care. <laughs> when, uh, Kaiba goes destroyed. to the fucking shadow realm or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really like. Then we that have a, a a wine bottle meme, and this is similar to the uh, the the doink meme, where you like you have a little section of it where it's like as you get further down through it, the mm-hmm. the mood changes, and so just the well, literal top of the bottle where there is no wine actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It says, "Look, railroad workers are just asking for some time off." And then uh, the whole rest of the bottle is, have you ever heard of the Battle of Blair Mountain? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this one, too, because the original that I saw was like the top of the bottle was like, oh, hello, Grandma, you're looking lovely today. I don't remember what the middle said. And then the bottom was like, Cousin John, you're a fascist and you won't be spared in the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the classic version, which I like the fact that this one doesn't even bottle, bother with the middle yeah. layer. <laughs> it's just like you go from zero to 100 yeah. immediately. <laughs> And then, so the last one I just really like because I thought it really captured the spirit of last week, which is you've got basically it's a it's a riff on the old uh, Obama hope poster where everything's you know shaded red, white, and blue, but it's got Biden looking completely confused, and then like a modified version of Obama's campaign logo, but it's one of those like you can't draw a clock because you're so 
you're suffering from dementia. <laughs> And it's just replaced the word hope with scab. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the thing that's been so frustrating about this is, is watching people get fall into this discursive trap where they're basically like debating like, well, if you think about it, the impact of a rail strike would be really bad for all of these vulnerable populations. I'm like, first off, if you go ask people in those vulnerable populations, I'm pretty sure most of them will tell you they support the rail mm-hmm. workers. And secondly, more importantly, again, starting from the wrong perspective of blaming the workers for a strike happening. Yeah. When again, none of this would have happened if the companies just treated their workers like human beings. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. And that's a point that we try to get across on every single episode. And we appreciate you listening. If you have some favorite episodes, feel free to share them. If you really like certain segments, you know, make sure to point them out to, to your friends and share them on different platforms. If you'd like to support us monetarily and get access to all of our overtime episodes and any of our shop floor discussions, we have... Uh, we just completed our series on rank-and-file rebellions of the 1970s, and that was a really, really interesting uh, set of episodes. So you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash workstoppage. And always, you know, jump in the Discord and come and talk to us about the different things that you're struggling with in your workplace. Or, you know, if you're doing organizing, if you have your own, you know, reform slate, if you're part of the... Uh, the United Food Workers and that rank and file movement. I mean, like, we want to talk more about that. Uh, you know, leave us a review somewhere. You can follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. You can follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can listen to BB Lettuce, listen to the Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. That's right, solidarity. Solidarity. Down here on the corner. on the corner